Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. In a time of DIY art, self-publishing is on the rise. 31% of all ebooks sold on Amazon are by self-publishers. Brick-and-mortar bookstores, much like mom-and-pop record stores, have gone by the wayside, and with only one blockbuster video left in the nation, digital copy has taken over. Today on the podcast, South Eugene High School social studies teacher and recently self-published author, Kyle Yamada. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Self-Esteem Boat Willie. My guest today is Kyle Yamada. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about your new book, uh, Metanid Convergence. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Awesome. Metanid. Yeah. So um, how did you come up with the name? Well, um, it came to me as sort of an idea of what what this concept of a metanid is it's basically like an artificial intelligence uh machine in the future uh but it's sort of like a combination of uh these giant conglomerates now uh where you see like for example amazon or google or apple or whatever uh where you see or facebook where they they are uh expanding to offer more and more products to people and uh to the point where you know you can just sort of live your life through one of these corporations in a way uh, ordering things to your house downloading you know entertainment and film and all that and get all of your necessities taken care of and um, essentially I thought well what if at some point in the future they are not controlled by uh, self-interested greedy human beings that are trying to maximize profit but rather um, by artificial intelligences that are competing with one another for bigger, more and more members, more and more notches on their belt, and it will stop at nothing to achieve that. So um, the name Metanid, I guess, came uh, just sort of what, first of all, kind of sounded cool, and it's a bit of a (laughs) stretch, honestly, but um, it's supposed to be like meta hominid, so like the idea of humans, an abstraction of humanity itself that's gone to another level um, of, of, uh, uh, I don't know, just kind of, uh, how things have developed. So it's a fiction book, uh, takes place in the future. Does, is there a time set specifically, or is it just kind of in the distant? Yeah. Um, I never specifically say exactly what year it is, but in my mind, I'm thinking around 2050. It's about 30 years. Okay. Of course, over the time that it took me to write the book, it was almost eight years that, you know, I kind of had to adjust in my head and there might be some inconsistency somewhere if you really carefully follow the the dates but, right well um, things have definitely changed in eight years <laughs> so i mean i'm familiar with kind of the content of cyberpunk i know that you mentioned that that what is go ahead and explain to what cyberpunk is if for people that wouldn't know 
Yeah, I mean, I, to me, um, well, I'd, I'd probably go back to the uh, the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson, who I think he really was the one who uh, invented the term cyberspace and the genre to a large degree. And um, it's kind of like, I guess if, if there's a way to describe the whole genre, it's kind of like a somewhat dystopian future where technology plays, you know, this really outsized role in our lives, but um, maybe in ways where uh, people have kind of modified themselves or been modified uh, and fused with this technology or in interact with this technology in ways that probably would make most of us uncomfortable today. Right. right. I remember as a kid, about 12 years old, I had a good friend of mine, Brian Levenhagen, shout out to Brian Levenhagen, that yeah. I was a athlete and, you know, Brian was not. <laughs> and he would, he, we call, I called him an indoor kid and he got me into playing paper, pencil, kind of people are familiar yeah. with Dungeons and Dragons, but we played the game cyberpunk. But the irony of it is it took place in the year 2020. They're about to release a video <laughs> game that's 2077, I believe. Nice. And, uh, you know, you would have cybernetic arms and like mm -hmm. optimized, like your eyes are robotic and all this different stuff. Sure. I can't remember if there was flying cars, but you know, the key of soul is definitely not, does not have wings, you know? but, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yet hopefully. So, so yeah. So cyberpunk was something that I was familiar with. I thought that was really cool when I was, I wish I had more time to read more of the book, but it was something that I was familiar with. And, uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. There is a bit of that going on in the, um, in the story. One of the main characters, Cassie, she is a, uh, teenage hacker, uh, in the future. And, probably perhaps the most cyberpunk type of element of that is the fact that, uh, you know, she has this neural implant that allows her to access the online world to become completely immersed in the virtual world, uh, without having to put on, you know, the virtual reality gloves or glasses or, you know, goggles or whatever that people imagine. So that's specific to her. Like yeah. Other people, how, how would, so it's a game that, or no, that's the whole world. I mean, Explain to me, so the the immersive experience, is it the whole world or is it like the people are basically aligned to certain groups you had said? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a double-edged, I guess a double-tiered type of thing. So um, there, on the one hand, there are these, you know, this virtual world that I think has become kind of common in the genre uh, where people kind of go to escape and there's right. like these like gaming. A, like a Ready Player One type. Exactly. I, I read that only after I finished my book and I'm really glad I did because um, uh, I, I felt like, wow, there's a lot of things that are pretty similar here that right. I feel like, oh gosh, I would have gotten discouraged and people would say that I ripped it off and I, I didn't. I promise you. But at the same time, um, there are also, um, I feel like some ideas in here that are really unique. So they're escaping, you know, people escape into this virtual world, but, um, at the same time, you know, uh, there's sort of the secondary thing where, um, people have become really dependent upon, uh, a few big entities that, you know, we think of today as corporations, but in the future, kind of these, um, you know, robots in a sense or artificial intelligences that have been programmed to do the best um, service or create the best service for their customers, their members that they possibly can. And it, it evolves into a situation, um, kind of a relationship where there's one chapter in the book where it kind of explains a lot of it. But um, I, I it's almost like having the mafia 
protecting you, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, if you live in a bad neighborhood, for example, and there's this local boss or whatever and demands protection money for running your business, you know, um, you can breathe, breathe easily that you're protected from that person and they provide certain services and you know, if I'm just imagining like, you know, watching The Godfather where, you know, they they, uh, they help you out. You scratch my back. I scratch yours. Um, but um, it's still kind of this exploitative thing. So that's kind of um, what people's relationships with these machines have kind of changed into. And so the central conflict in the story is that um, the main one of the main characters, Cassie, uh, seems to have. Uh, she's basically a rebel against this type of organization or this type of uh, uh, intelligence. And um, she seems to have crossed one of them to the point where it wants her dead. Oh no. And yeah. And then, so a lot of the story is her and her grandfather. Yeah. And so what is the, uh, I know that her dad who is deceased Mm -hmm. and that's early on in the book or was that before the like it's, as it starts, it's already like you explained that he had already passed. It's kind of yeah. I think pass is a little um, a little uh, uh, calmly way calmly <laughs> describing. It. He's you know he's basically he's murdered uh, by the machine and um, called Arknet and uh, basically her estranged grandfather uh, Edward Gage and he just kind of goes by his last name through most of the book Gage. Um, he's kind of the only person that she has left that she feels that she can trust and turn to, to help, um, escape the, you know, solve the problem that she's stuck in. Um, but the kind of the weird thing for the story, it creates, I think an interesting tension, uh, is that Gage himself is a complete technophobe. Right. Um, yeah. And so kind of similar to the older generation currently. Right. A lot of times. Yeah. And exa- in, in a lot of ways, I mean, when I imagined him as a character, I kind of thought of what if I, um, you know, in around 2050 and I'll be, you know, something like 70 uh, or wait, no, I guess I'll be 80 something. OK. But um, the point is that, you know, he's kind of what I imagine myself right. to be like uh, if I kind of just stagnated at my current comfort level with technology right now right. and you know yeah you can use you know the the futuristic equivalent of a smartphone but that's kind of what you know uh i don't know it's kind of like you go to your 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 grandmother's house or something like that and they're asking you to use the sears robot catalog right. for them or something right. so it is crazy as time advances you know the older i get the more i notice i'm resistant to change but technology i mean i've grown up with it i guess it, i'm in that little small window where i'm a uh zennial i guess like a okay. gen, like in between generation x and millennial so kind of have an appreciation for the generations before. Sure. And then, cause now millennials are like, screw you old man. <laughs> <laughs> and you as a teacher, I'm sure you know that, you know? Um, so, so I wanted to also talk, that's the, I don't want to get too crazy with the plot cause I do sure. want people to read it, you know? Sure. Uh, so we're going to post the link in the, uh, Facebook post and also on the podcast page about Metanid Convergence and where you can find it. It is on Amazon. Is it strictly just Amazon release? Yes. Um, and I know you, if in your intro, you, you kind of described some of the, I guess, the conflicted feelings about that. And, right. Um, but yeah, for me as a, a first time author, that was simply the easiest way to get it out there when you I, know, mean, I don't have I, to. You know, I don't, for me personally, I support 
digital art for independent artists because mm-hmm. I, and and through the major platforms like Amazon or whatever for music Bandcamp and different things Spotify the the streams it's like a necessary evil I know mm-hmm. that it hurts in physical sales but it also allows you to not have to invest so much that you're taking something that could be considered more of a hobby right you know like obviously spent the rent this is I brought you on because I knew how fitting it was for the topic and kind of that I envisioned of this show that I wanted people that do things for a passion like people that are are so driven by this something inside them that they create this art or whatever it is so that they can do it but don't have to sell themselves or don't have to change so I'm kind of getting off the point but I I support the uh, the model of like the ebooks and also it's like great if you're trying to help somebody move if they like ebooks because yeah. you don't you know it's like if yeah i mean I've, every one of us has had a friend that is like hey can you help me move and it's like do you like to read because then the answer is no <laughs> you know but but uh so the price point is for the ebook is two is it 2.99 that's right yeah um so it's it's so pretty it's very reasonable. affordable you know and then you can buy physical copies that's uh, right i was lucky enough to get a media copy this is the first perk of my podcast <laughs> exactly that um it's but the price point on the physical paperback copy is 10, 10 99 yeah so go ahead and go on amazon and and at least buy the ebook you guys are not going to be disappointed it's jam-packed full of action metanid convergence uh pretty exciting stuff i wanted to also talk to you about what drove you to to write your first novel now you've been mm-hmm. a teacher for how many years now I think it's been 15 and I'm going into the 16th or let me see. It may be the 17th now that I actually have to, if I do my math right, but um, and always at the there. high school level always. Yeah. A nine. Uh, well, actually I've never taught ninth. So it's 10, 10, 11, 12 are the ones that I've taught and currently 10, 11. And you've kind of bounced around between different schools. I mean, in, in Eugene, for those that may not know, there's international high school, which is like a, secondary I went to south but I was a transfer student from Springfield and so we didn't have the international high school in Springfield and the international high school is like next level like it's like college prep it's it's pretty pretty awesome stuff so it is that and it's also um for anybody who is interested in international you know education and just having um learning more about the wider world so right it's it's kind so, of fit for um, everyone so what got you with the book what motivated I'm sure you know growing up I read in your acknowledgments in the book, which is a really good read, the people that you uh, give shout outs to, that you had some really inspiring teachers yourself. Yeah. And that kind of, was it your fifth grade teacher that really motivated you to be a better writer and believe in yourself that you could? Um, yeah. So um, there were, yeah, Mrs. McLean was one of the big teachers that just got me thinking about social issues and thinking about politics and all of those types of you know, uh, trying to solve the problems of the world and being aware of that for the first time. And, um, writing was a factor there too, but, uh, uh, Mrs. Fulton for, I had for seventh grade Penny Fulton and, uh, really, uh, was demanding in terms of what she wanted from us as, as writers. And that, you know, forced me to step it up and, and really expand my abilities. And, and I could go on and on. Um, you can see the acknowledgments in the book. I don't. I wanna, it's lengthy. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to leave anyone out. It's always tough if you mention one name. Um, but uh, I see. So you you were, are you born and raised in Eugene? Uh, actually, Corvallis. Okay, so Corvallis. I didn't wind up too far from home, but uh, yeah, it's it's I'm I'm a Willamette Valley guy. Nice. Um, all the way through. So. But graduated from the University of Oregon. Uh huh. And did you get uh, what did you get your degree in? 
My degree is actually in history with uh, minors in economics and German, but uh, um, yeah. Pretty early on, did you know you wanted to kind of pursue teaching? No, um, it was not until after I graduated uh, from college. I guess I had always had sort of thought of it as a as a possibility. I always thought I was going to be an artist of some kind as a kid. Um, I would, you know, for a long time, I wanted to be a filmmaker. When I was younger, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And um, at various times, you know, as when I was a teenager, I thought about uh, writing too. So, but I kind of bounced around to different creative, you know, types of things that I wanted to do. Um, Even dabbled in, you know, playing around with music synthesizer type of things, but or sequencers. But um, yeah, uh, I think that uh, teaching was something always in the back of my mind, and that. somehow I would always imagine the things that I learned the way I would understand it for myself was to imagine myself explaining it to somebody else right. or helping somebody else understand it. And then, well, it helps when you have good teachers as a kid, cause then it inspires you to want to kind of give back and exactly. Yeah. So at what point did you realize that it was a real possibility that you could, I mean, I'm sure at first you're like, I'm gonna write a novel. And then you kind of yeah. sit down and you kind of toy with it and you're like, this is a lot harder than I envisioned, you know? And then at what point did it become a reality that, you know, I could do this? Cause it's, you know, it's a pretty lengthy book. I mean, yeah, well, um, it's, it's about 300 pages, but that's with, you know, some pretty decent sized print. So it's, it's, um, it's definitely not like a giant tome sure. or anything, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's up there a little bit, but, um, I guess the basic thing was, you know, part of why I wanted to be a teacher as much as I was also inspired, uh, to want to, you know, work with young people and, um, and just believing in the profession itself, uh, and, and, you know, having that passion, um, there was also part of me thinking, okay, this way I can still pursue, you know, my artistic, Right. Uh, interest. And you have your summers, you know, exactly in the summers. And, um, I guess part of what I didn't count on is just how overwhelmingly busy, uh, the life of a teacher is if you take it seriously. And I think, you know, almost all teachers pretty much do, um, to the point where personally as kind of a perfectionist, uh, I just can't, couldn't even think about, um, doing anything creative, uh, during the entire school year. And by the time, other than creating my lesson plans, uh, by the time summer would roll around, I would be so exhausted for the first few years that uh, it, nothing would even come of it. Uh, and then I got to a f- point a few years later into it that I thought, okay, I feel like I have some time and I could do something creative. But uh, I think I was kind of rusty and hadn't really done anything in a while. And I couldn't really think of anything I wanted to do. And it really came around when I was just sick on um, a trip visiting my sister-in-law and her wife uh, in the Seattle area, and I was just overdoing it in terms of, you know, working too hard. And right, just I got, pushing yourself. Yeah, and I got sick, and I had to lie down down there in their uh, one of their guest rooms, their guest room, and uh, just letting my mind wander for the first time in right. I don't know how long it had been, and some of these ideas that I described to you earlier just kind of started swirling around in my head and it was a six months before I had a chance to actually sit down and do anything with it over the summer. But, um, I just jotted down a lot of notes the first chance I had. And, um, that was really what, what started it up. And then did it just kind of just take off? Like where you just started page after page, just really started pouring out? Well, in a way, I mean, I think at that point, you know, I had the inspiration and I thought, okay, I know my, st- I, I, I kind of came up with the b- basic idea of the characters and the story 
and I felt like I had a uh, concept that got me excited and I really wanted to share it and I was really excited to do that. Um, but it still took me a long time. Like, right. you know, well, I'm sure it's a, a giant undertaking uh, considering the immersive ass. I mean, it's such a huge world to create the, you know, being that it's, I mean, it's so hard to wrap your head around the whole, uh, robot, like robot robots running the whole, you know, it's so giant, you know, so yeah. it's gotta be difficult to really just jump full in, but, uh, you're going to have to check out the book to get to know more metadata convergence. So, uh, I also wanted to talk to you about, uh, basically technology and teaching uh-huh. and the challenges now as a teacher with technology. I know that with, you know, obviously phones, at a high school level, are phones not just not allowed in classrooms? Is that up to the teacher? You know, it kind of depends on which school you're at and which classroom room you're in. And I think, you know, honestly, I think in the last year, it feels like there's sort of been a wake up among kind of the education community of like, okay, we've got to figure out some real strategies. I think that, um, you know, whenever you have a major shift in technology, uh, it's deeply upsetting and not like in the negative sense in a way, but just like disrupting, it, basically. disrupting. Yeah. Right. It upsets w- all of the normal orders right. and, and routines. I mean, we, I didn't have my first cell phone. I'm 36 years old until I was 19. Sure. So it was after high school. And I just straight can't imagine like the, you know, but I'd also imagine parents want access to their kid 24 seven to sure. text them or whatever, while they're in class, which I could see. I mean, you know, I have two stepsons that while they're in class, they're not going to respond. They don't respond anyway, but, but, <laughs> but uh, that's beside yeah. the point. Yeah. I have a, a yeah, a, almost teenager too. So I understand, I right. understand that completely. Right. Um, so I, you know, also as a teacher, I, I, I wanted to ask you the challenges, um, with how do I go about this? The, you know, obviously there's been this last year and over, there's been a slew of school violence and Mm -hmm. in Eugene, it was very public that we had a student walkout that was, I guess it was national, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it yeah. was, was, was the day that we did it. What was it like it March 24th? I think back. it was right around there and I'm... it was a national walkout. What challenges do you find in supporting the students, but also trying to leave the politics at, at home? I mean, I know that yeah. in the South Eugene, a lot of people, it's a, there's definitely people that are underrepresented because of such a strong, you know, like I'd say it's like 90% feel pretty much on the same page in a, in South Eugene. But sure. there's also kids that don't agree yeah. you know, with some of the, the reasons. How, how do you go about kind of supporting the students, whether they agree or not with yeah. your views? That's an excellent question. And I think um, uh, it really depends. I mean, as a teacher who's been at Churchill, Sheldon and South Eugene High School, I hear what you're saying that, you know, in different different schools there's always within one town like ours there is a very different school culture and wonderful attributes about each individual school uh, and that extends also to people's you know political leanings as well right. and i mean i think there's a couple points you brought up there i'll try to um one is that as a teacher 
um, you know, I think we all have strong opinions if uh, as human beings, Absolutely. and uh, especially something so passionate. Sure, you know, and we're talking about kids' lives, and there's so much. I mean, and yeah, I mean, I feel strongly that we need to, you know, put really a lot more restrictions on guns within. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot that the founding uh, framers of our Constitution uh, could never have imagined, and right. they said, I mean, you know, we need a well-regulated militia. Right um, now, to what extent am I going to uh, express this is the the right point of view in the classroom and this is not it's always tempting when you have that I'm soapbox sure. to, uh, to yeah. say hey you know this is how it is and i think over the time that i've been a teacher you know you realize there are some moments you realize you know that was satisfying in the moment and and yet i don't think that they learned necessarily no, I mean, from that you know that, that's got to be such a challenge because there's so many parents that that's their complaint i mean right. i was raised by my dad is a pretty conservative guy, not pretty conservative. He is Rush Limbaugh, but, <laughs> but, uh, he was very, he let me go to South Eugene. I, and I say let, because I transferred from Springfield high school mm-hmm. to South Eugene by choice, took the city bus to school because I just, the demographic was so much more similar to myself and I felt more comfortable there. Yeah. And he supported it, but gosh, he had to roll his eyes quite a bit mm-hmm. because there was things that he was like, these teachers are brainwashing, are indoctrinating yeah. you, which they may have a point to an extent if it's like such a different viewpoint. But, you know, I wish yeah. we could all look at each other and look at why sure. we have our views. It's just in a, in the place like the Northwest, I say it a lot on the podcast that it's such a reflection of the nation because we have such a divide here mm-hmm. politically and the way that we kind of view things there is some very strong friends of mine strong supporters of the second amendment Mm -hmm. and i listen to them i you know i wish they would listen as well i'm not saying they don't always there's some people on that that are very open-minded and and willing to talk regulation and different things sure we could be here forever on that topic but that has to be a challenge as a teacher and i think it's really great that you kind of admit that that's a tempting like you said, it was tempting to, when you have that soapbox because that is such a huge responsibility to well, have that impact on each kid. Almost, you know, even if it's an hour a day that you talk to each student, that might be about the same amount of time that some of their parents, if they're getting a chance to see eye to eye contact. I absolutely. Mean, which is a go ahead. Well, and I, I think what it really ultimately comes down to is what I've learned over the years is that, um, you know, in order for students uh, and young people to learn the skills they need to sort out all of the junk that's out there and all the lies. Right. Uh, Cause there are just a, a lot of just plain straight out lies. Absolutely. Uh, you, you're not going to get them. If you beat them over the head with this or that particular view, they're going to shut you out. So especially you know, now when they have access to, like we talked about before technology, yeah. to everything, or they're going to listen to you for a while and then they realize, oh, wait a second, I've been manipulated, you know, and, and that doesn't feel good. They, they're, they're going to shut you out ultimately. Um, and what you ultimately have to do is teach them the tools uh, to say, OK, how do I you know, how do I rate or judge this piece of information versus that piece of information? And how do you um, essentially evaluate what's credible and what's not? And. Uh, you know, in my classroom, I, tr- I do my best to give a fair representation of different points of view. And right. sometimes I'll say, well, these are the pro- pros of this particular perspective. These are the cons. And, and here's what the other side says. And I have to have faith that um, if I'm doing my job well, then 
students are going to make the right choices for themselves. And right. that may not necessarily mean everyone coming out with the same point of view, but right, right. having a better appreciation for what the other side thinks and how to have a dialogue about that. And yeah. Well, and I'm um, sure that the, you know, kids are intelligent beings that they can inspire us to change and evolve as well. You know? Yeah. And, you know, the other side of that too, you mentioned uh, the technology and, you know, that's another piece where the knee jerk reaction for me as a teacher is I see somebody on their phone in class and I'm thinking, Hey, you know, that is rude. Pay attention to me. You know, I deserve your respect. I deserve your attention. Um, this is what we're doing here, not that. And um, there is obviously a val validity, some validity to that point of view. You know, at, at some point it makes sense to say, hey, let's put all of that stuff away. It right. shouldn't come out. At the same time, our schools being underfunded as they are, um, why you'd have to be crazy to not take advantage of these incredibly powerful personal computing devices right. that are in almost right. every pocket. Right. Um, then you have an equity issue that there's a few kids that don't have cell phones or you know, by choice or by um, other reasons, financial reasons. Um, but uh, the point is there is an appropriate place for it. If you can figure out how to harness it and make that effective. That's another issue altogether is the economic situations where now it's pretty much, I mean, is cursive just not taught now? Like it's all computer based. Like essentially yeah. if, a, if a high school age kid doesn't have a laptop, they're at a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, my son uh, is 12 and, and going into eighth grade or excuse me, seventh grade. Um, yeah. And they, they never taught uh, cursive. And, and I understand, you know, I learned that as a kid, but uh, one thing we teach in economics is what I, uh, one of my subjects is the idea of opportunity cost. And perhaps there are so many other important skills that cursive is just not, you know, the highest priority. I don't, I, that's a decision for, for, you know, uh, elementary teachers, uh, primary school teachers, uh, primarily, but, um, now it's code. Yeah, maybe it's code. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it should it's be a baby boomer code. No, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a major theme in my novel actually is that you have kind of these polar opposites, um, where you have some characters like Cassie, who is, you know, just, completely immersed in the technology there's no even though she's fighting the alternative or excuse me the artificial intelligence uh you know machines uh she still believes in technology implicitly she doesn't even uh think to to question it right uh her grandfather is more questioning but then there also are these very um anti-technology luddite characters in the book and I think what I tried to do was kind of to posit these different extremes of complete, utter immersion and being lost in the technology for technology's sake uh, versus maybe the opposite extreme of rejecting everything out of hand because you're uncomfortable with it and because it's new. And right. um, I guess if there, I tried not to make the book too didactic, but I guess if there is a moral of it, it's a little didactic perhaps, but <laughs> if there is a bit of a moral of it, it's, you know, that you've got to find some kind of balance and uh, be selective about what technologies you adopt and when and how to right. use them. Well, that's, this is, I, I do know that my stepson, Ethan is going to, is going to love the book. He hasn't, I just got it. So he's, he hasn't had a chance to peel himself away from his Xbox, but he is a good read. He is a reader. And would you say that that kind of teen to, is there like an age group that you kind of were geared towards or you just wrote it from the heart? I mean, right. you just wrote it. 
You know, I think it, I think it could actually appeal to a pretty broad age range because there are basically two main characters. Right. One of them right. is is a teenager, uh, and one of them is basically an old man. Right. Um, and I think everybody in between, because the old man is again me or people my age sure. in uh, 20, 30 years. Um, so uh, I think that it, you know, for somebody who likes technology or is is comfortable in that world, and somebody who's uncomfortable, it could appeal. I think it's really cool range. that you chose a female, a main character. I mean, there's more multiple characters, but she's sure. kind of the main character. I think it's really neat to pick the female character too, because technology and with women, it's something that needs to be kind of embraced and encouraged. I know there's a lot of startup businesses now that are helping young girls start with coding, yeah, and and, and which is really exciting. So that was was cool too because it adds maybe another demographic that may. I mean. Sci-fi, it's it. The rules are out the window as far as gender and interests and video games and movies and stuff. I mean, I know so many girls that were into Dungeons and Dragons and yeah. cyberpunk type stuff as well. So it's pretty cool how things have changed and kind of evolved. And you know, there's no set guidelines on what you know people are guys are supposed to do, girls are supposed to do. You know, it's pretty good. Well, Kyle, I want to. Thank you for coming on. You have uh, a reading of the book. When is that coming up? Is it the 24th? Yes. Um, so Friday, uh, the 24th uh, at four o'clock at the Knight Library Reading Room. And that's at the University of Oregon. Uh, right. So at the Knight Library Reading Room, four o'clock. Uh, four o'clock. And I have to be done by five. They're kicking me out. So, um, <laughs> nice. and it shouldn't be that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll have some copies of the book to sign. Uh, and they will be, uh, yeah, actually at the, at the reading, it's kind of a deal I'll be selling them for $10 a copy there. Awesome. So this is kind of one of the, you know, it's very, when you're a self publisher, it's very difficult to get the word out. So this podcast recorded in my closet is, is uh, the first step at that. And I want to thank you guys for listening to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am always, as always, self-esteem about Willie. Thank you, Kyle Yamada, Thanks. for coming to the show. Uh, we're going to go ahead and close the show with a song that I wrote, sort of fitting, called The Writers. All right. Live behind the writers, run and hide from the biters Who can fight in easy riders, who lack pride inside words tighter My bra raspy rants and pajama pants And inabilities to break dance Symbolize motivation, the separation of cans and cans So remember the words to my chants Interaction with your mental integrity Because folks, I'm not repping your pedigree I'm falling and I can't get up Appalling those who chose to be corrupt I once would use my voice Not speaking out is not a choice With God our money we can't rejoice I've fallen and I can't get up Appalling those who chose to be corrupt I once would use my voice Not speaking out is not a choice With God our money we can't rejoice the journey started slow, I stated overused flows Well, trying to grow as an adolescent with an ingrown toenail on both feet Down on the pavement, raving, craving more Of a thirst for nothingness, surrounded by drowning in abundance Of shellfish, selfishness in a battle with the hell inside it gets cluttered All this is draining me, order out a list of failures I'm maintaining All this is draining me, my outward approach is not explaining the battle, the battle, the message, the message, the story, the story. The American, the American audience, audience is snoring, is snoring. Sleep 
Give away your dreams, pop pills to erase memories Cover celebrities and don't think about foreign casualties Questionable ethical practice Act this way or else Sleep away the dreams, pop pills to erase memories Cover celebrities and don't think about foreign casualties Questionable ethical practice Act this way or else Appalling those who chose to be corrupt I once would use my voice Not speaking out is not a choice With God our money we can't rejoice I've fallen and I can't get up Appalling those who chose to be corrupt I once would use my voice Not speaking out is not a choice With God our money we can't rejoice